Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. The events that are out there that are most dangerous are the ones nobody sees coming. It's the thing that is only explained away after the fact. Hey, News Bulletin, this is hardly 1930 or 2008. And yet, and yet, everyone in the world wants safety. Safety at any price. So much so that a record amount of government bonds now yield less than zero. Negative yields. What in the heck is that telling us? Maybe nothing that should much concern you at all. Listen to this here show, Full Disclosure. Stay with us. Broadcast of Full Disclosure made possible by Confluence Coffee. This stuff is great. You'll find it in cans. It is the way to have cold brew. I came to these guys and said, sponsor my show because I love your product so much. There are three flavors, House Nitro, Nitro Mocha, and the Nitro Citron. The mocha is made by steeping direct trade Brazilian cocoa nibs with the coffee. The citron is organic orange peel steeped along with the coffee. They use fair trade organic Honduran bean from Blanchard's and all of the coffees. And you kind of get a Guinness-like head if you shake the can first, less if you don't. I highly suggest you pick up one or two or ten cans of these. You can find them at Elwood's Urban Farmhouse, Whole Foods, and a bunch of smaller markets around town. In D.C., they're at Mom's Organic Market. Visit them at confluencecoffeeco.com. And by my pals at Elwood Thompson's, Richmond's independently owned organic and local market, proudly feeding the community and supporting local farmers for 25 plus years. Located at the top of Carytown, you got to have the breakfast buffet there. And I got to tell you, those booths, it's, it's better than LinkedIn. The people that you meet there, we've already had several on the show. Check them out at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from Manhattan is Michael Gayed, Portfolio Manager at Pension Partners, an investment advisor overseeing mutual funds and separate accounts. Good, sir. How are you? I'm good. Good. How are you? Uh, what I don't understand is you have interest rates in the United States at, at um, multi-year lows. You have a stock market at an all-time high. You have unemployment, I guess, what, nominally under 5%. So what gives? This is not supposed to be the way it is. You, you you would think that the bond market here and especially abroad would compete with those kind of asset returns. Yeah, you're you know you're not the only one that doesn't fully understand what's happening. I don't think many professionals in the field fully understand what's happening, largely because we've never seen this kind of a scenario before, where the hunt for yield has become maybe a bubble chase for yields that creates these negative yields, creates these distortions in the fixed income world and results in what is a, really a quite unusual bull market. You know, most bull markets historically tend to be led and tend to be driven by cyclical sectors. In other words, those parts of the marketplace most sensitive to growth, most sensitive to inflation. What has been perplexing so far in 2016 is that what has led the market higher to new highs has been all the wrong stuff. Right, It's been the stuff which is not that sensitive to economic growth, is not that sensitive to inflation, actually tends to do better when you have the exact opposite situation. So there's no doubt it's been a very bizarre environment, and, and negative yields obviously are the, uh, the sort of canary in the coal mine that proves that out. 
And not only negative yields, but we're talking, according to Bank of America, there's now $13 trillion of global negative yielding debt. I mean, you look at places like Switzerland and and Japan and what's going on in some of the most developed countries of Europe, and it's one thing to be a flight to quality. It's another thing to have yields that you would would expect in a kind of a 2008 or Great Recession type scenario. I mean, uh, getting in line for for cat food. I mean, it's not exactly the world we live in. I understand Brexit was scary. I understand the pigs. You know, Portugal, Italy, Ireland, Greece, Spain, and and uh, countries potentially leaving the euro. But I mean, is it just a, a U.S. centric, you know, fat American perspective on my end that it doesn't seem all that bad? It clearly is not that bad. I mean, when you look at the economic data, despite all of the social mood and rhetoric that's out there about how there isn't as much broad participation. That's why you have voter frustration. I mean, the reality is in aggregate, things are nowhere near obviously as bad as one would think, given the levels that bond yields are at. Even if you look at Europe, you'd say if you're a Martian coming from outer space, you would think that Europe is in this tremendous depression. Clearly, Europe is not. While it's going through slow growth and disappointing responses to all this monetary stimulus, it's not really warranting those low levels and those negative yields that we're seeing. So the question then becomes really who is right? Is the bond market, is the smartest guy in the room right about the future or could the smart guy get it wrong here? And could it very well be that negative yields are not only wildly unwarranted, but are actually causing a potential uh, disaster to come for anybody that's a fixed income investor. And I think that's really the the question every single individual, every single financial advisor ultimately has to think through. What what happens when these negative yields stop going more negative, but go positive? When that's a, yeah, have- seize on that point, because we've discussed it before. You wonder on the bond desks that you deal with, and even the portfolio managers, if there's a generational awareness that you can actually lose money, lose principal in bonds. And I'm, I'm not sure there is. Yeah, and, and I think that goes back to the point that you know it's not taught in textbooks that you have negative yields, that the risk-free rate is under zero, right? That's, that, that's why I think nobody really can think through it because there's no conceptual uh, framework or any kind of history to point to. Look, negative yields only make sense under two scenarios. Right. One is you do have outright deflation, meaning that everything around you, prices are falling at a faster rate than the negative yields are causing you to lose money. Now, in that scenario, cash is still a better investment than bonds because at least you don't lose because there's no negative yields. It's a zero yield. Uh, the other scenario under which negative yields make sense is if you're on the verge of a banking crisis. Now, the reason I'm saying that is in particular with Europe, you don't have an FDIC-type equivalent such that your money in the bank is protected. So if there's a legitimate concern that there's a banking crisis to come, it would make sense to have negative yields for a moment in time as money gets out of deposits and says, I'd rather put it with the government, and that negative yield is like an insurance cost. To but it's, sure it's supposed to be a momentary blip or a momentary distortion. Right. What right. we've seen it morph into over the better part of you know four or five years, and certain economies like Switzerland, uh, um, Scandinavian economies, it's actually become more of a fetish. Uh, that, that that's you know how can things get any lower than they are? You know it was it was bad enough during the worst of the European crisis. I think in 2010, 2011. Is it actually demonstrably worse right now? 
Yeah, and, and, and you know these things tend to take longer than anybody thinks, right? Greenspan came up with his irrational exuberance line about stocks, I think, in '96. It didn't end until the tech wreck, you know, early 2000 began. So it can always take longer than most people realize when these themes get very long in the tooth, and we keep saying this has got to be near the end, this has got to be near the end, and somehow even more bonds become even more negative. Now the difference between bonds and stocks here. Is you know we're not just talking about some investment. You're talking about interest rates. Interest rates are the heart, soul, and life of any free enterprise system. And when you get to these types of levels on a global scale, it's not just that there's sort of this yield hunger and go for anything that's positive. And if it's negative, maybe bet that it goes more negative so that you get some kind of capital gain on that. The question really becomes what do those negative yields do longer term to an economy? And we don't know because it does, I think – arguably create male investment. It arguably creates uh, a, an unusual sense of safety in bonds so that even if you lose, you're only going to lose that negative yield, even though we know that's not fully the case. It depends on if you sell mm -hmm. between you know, when you buy and maturity. So it, there's no question it's a very bizarre environment. Now, that doesn't mean that one should be scared about bonds. There are always opportunities. It doesn't mean one should be scared about stocks, but it does, I think, present a, a thesis for you know, the worst case and best case scenarios. Worst case scenario, bond market's right, in which case stocks probably fall very aggressively. You have deflation globally and we're all in a lot of trouble. Or the better case scenario would be bonds are wrong and you have, you know, finally some kind of movement en masse into risk assets, into the right type of things, leading equities higher. Now, that gets back to kind of the textbook relationship that they want to teach you in Econ 101 and 102. Am I seeing right, Michael, when I look at the quote today, <laughs> the yield on a treasury, U.S. 30-year treasury, the, the old bellwether bond, is 2.15%. Is that right? Yeah. And, you know, if you look at one, two, three-month T-bills, they're yielding more than, you know, 10, 20, 30-year duration bonds in Europe. And that's what's so bizarre about this kind of environment. And this is why also I think you know, any kind of talk about the Fed raising rates really has to be very uh, – has to be calmed down in the media, largely because the Fed raising rates does not mean rates will rise. And, and that's a nuance that I think is not really thought of or discussed openly. The Fed controls – Well, yeah, let's, let's, let's unpack that. The, the Fed controls short-term rates. This is a long-term, you know, government bond here, 30 years. Let's, let's unpack that first. In 30 years, a hell of a lot can happen. If you think back to 1986, that was the year of the Challenger incident, um, uh, you know, the, the melt-up in the stock market, Reaganomics. Uh, if, if you think about everything that traversed into the bond crash of 1994, the stock market crash of 87, the various emerging market crises, uh, Enron, subprime, stock market bubble, 9-11, 30 years is a hell of a long time. Uh, for anybody to kind of indulge the fear of today and say that, you know, I, I think this is going to extrapolate out into 30 years seems rather delusional. Yes and no. And I'll, and I'll, I'll take it from the standpoint of, of why I'm saying that. 30 years is a long time to us, but cycles can take a much longer time to play out. So can you make a case that bond yields will forever be low? No question. And it's actually very easy to make the case. All you have to do is look at your smartphone and see how many apps you're using that are causing you to save money as opposed to the way you would normally, let's say, commute if you're doing Uber or any kind of other sharing service. You've got this secular trend that is happening that is disinflationary, sure. which should, I think, result in lower yields on average. doesn't mean that you have to have negative yields, 
but that the average yield in the future likely is going to be a lot lower than what we're used to because things are different. Technology is not linear. When it moves and progresses, it moves in a parabolic type of way. You end up seeing tremendous advances, which results in more automation, results in less labor, results in, uh, in general, just less need for credit. Right? Sure. If you just look at the private sector. But to your other point, nobody can predict the very long term. I always, I'm on the road all the time. I present on what are now four award-winning papers, which relate to our strategies at various CFA chapters across the country. I always say upfront, nobody can predict the very long term. This has been shown time and time again. But what I can maybe predict is that the conviction of the crowd can be wrong about their conviction, right? In other words, if everyone does believe that you're headed for some kind of massive disinflation, deflation, because nobody can predict the future, the payout is large for betting that the crowd is wrong in that belief. So I don't have to necessarily forecast that bond yields are going to be low or rise in level. All I have to bet on is everybody else's conviction being wrong. And I think that's kind of the the, the way to look at bonds here and now. That sounds like speculation, though, if I'm wrong. You're just betting that other people are going to be wrong. It's like a derivative on what this is supposed to represent in the first place. To some extent, I think that's 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 somewhat accurate, but I'll make the case to you that everything in markets to some extent is some degree of speculation, especially in a world that is increasingly short term uh, in the way it views you know what is supposed to be a long term asset, right? Most uh, when you look at uh, bond funds, bond ETFs, they trade with quite a bit of volume. Now these are supposed to be things that you hold, right? But because people are constantly trying to speculate, on yields, you're seeing less and less of a desire to hold on to anything. Just like in general, you have this wave of renting as opposed to owning houses, you are seeing a wave of renting as opposed to owning investments. And whenever you have that, it's inherently speculative, right? No matter what. If everyone else is being speculative to the extent of constantly trying to bet on, you know, when rates will rise, when rates will fall, and nobody's really holding and just churning. Yeah, I think that there, there's an argument to be made that the longer-term money is really made by betting against the short-term crowd's thinking. We're talking to Michael Gayed. He's portfolio manager at Pension Partners. He's chief investment strategist at Pension Partners. Also, you'll see him on the financial news on financial radio quite a bit. He's winner of the 2016 Dow Award. Um, I, I would like to ask you, Michael, uh, what – you know, going back to that point, and, and, and we'll move away from bonds – it seems like all of this complacency here. This is this has been kind of the 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 order of the world largely since two thousand and eight. Near zero interest rate policy. I think on the short end of the bond curve, unbelievable amounts of easing. Not just in taking rates to zero, but then throwing you know qualitative easing, conjuring up money on top of it. It seems like all this is ripe for another bubble or a complacent moment like those Bear Stern funds. You know, they call it the Minsky moment where stability will create an unstable moment. Somebody will will, will set the barn on fire somehow. Uh, and yet, you know, to mix metaphors, it seems like that's a that's been a crying wolf thing for the last three or four years. Every year has started with every investment outlook saying that this is going to be the year of, of, of the bond massacre. And it just doesn't happen. People keep going back into bonds. Sure. You, you know, what people forget about the, the story of the boy who cried wolf is that the boy was ultimately right. But he was a man by the time he was right because it took so long for him to be right. right? So I, I think that's a very well taken point that it's something that's always out there. And usually the bubble is the thing that nobody talks about. right? So everyone talks about bonds being in a bubble. They've been saying that for years. 
if everyone's talking about it, it probably really isn't a bubble in a, in a traditional sense, right? What I had been making the case for, and I think this is maybe a more nuanced discussion, if there is any kind of bubble out there, anything that's, that's as far as the investable landscape goes, I would argue that there is a bubble here and now in passive indexing, in passive investment strategies where we're saying don't don't beat the market be the market the vanguards and the black rocks of the world and the the schwab etfs have been taking the lion's share of, of of at least equity inflows uh since the worst of the great recession am i am i right right and and really that's only accelerated just the last couple of years really after the 2013 you know qe3 infused move higher and i think that's it's, it's a very nuanced way of thinking about bubbles right if, if vanguard is capturing almost all of the asset flows in the industry, everyone loves passive ETFs now, but they hate it in March 09. It does beg the question: Is there some kind of a mispricing happening in terms of market capitalization, uh-huh. in terms of passive strategies? Now, what that means for the average person is that there's going to be an environment where you want more active, tactical type of approaches, tactical types of uh, strategies, because. In general, the rule of thumb is you want passive indexing, passive investments towards the tail end of a bear market, towards the tail end of a bull market. You want stuff which can actually maybe protect you from volatility. And going back to the Minsky moment, right? every age of turbulence does need an age of moderation before it. I mean, Greenspan, as much as people may deride him, the title of his books have been spot on. Mm-hmm. And I do think that the age of moderation, we're getting closer to the end of it. I don't know, again, going back to forecasting, the exact moment that's going to happen. I know that every day that goes by, you're probably closer to that. And that could result in a bubble pop of passive, which does have ramifications for the vast majority of individuals and financial advisors who've been pushing towards that. Go back to the Federal Reserve, and you can't quite say that Janet Yellen has been crisis tested uh, yet in the United States. I mean, after all, it was Ben Bernanke who inherited 2007, 2008 and subprime. You know, Alan Greenspan navigated the world uh, through 94 and 95 and in the wake of of the 87 crash and the SNL crisis. I do worry uh, about what bond yields in the United States represent. If you just considered the United States as an island, and I know it's not, but let's let's set up the straw man here. Uh, Asset prices here are great. Right, the stock market again is at a nominal all-time high. Uh, real estate is beyond resurgent. I mean, you're seeing all cash deals. Uh, another refinance wave. Uh, junk bonds have done very well. Art has done very well. Uh, condos. I mean, all of the all of the, the the subprime Tate has kind of been wrung out. The banks have been recapitalized. Unemployment again is under five percent. Um, why can't she just look at her mandate of, you know, she's at full employment right now. Why can't she take rates at a natural level? It seems to be punishing savers. And I fear uh, uh, incenting the kind of risk-taking to go after yield and go after returns that can cause another crisis. Shouldn't the Fed be able to to focus on its own mandate of unemployment versus inflation? I mean, that that's obviously in an ideal world. And I think the Fed is afraid of taking blame. Right. There, there's an argument, which I think is valid, that low rates have not helped the economy. Right. That low rates, if you had with, with rates as low as they have been, and especially with negative rates in Europe, you should be based on all classic theories about uh, the, the role of uh, interest rates in the economy. You should have been seeing GDP growth you know, north of 10% or something obscene. Well, no, we were coming out of an outlandish kind of crater. And yes, the stock market came back and you had 
junk yields at 22, 21%, sure. right? And, and people were talking about taking money out of their ATMs and not trusting the banks. We're eight years removed from that, man. Um, I what, what, completely agree. What annoys me, though, is anytime she's even thinking about normalizing interest rates, she controls the short end of the thing. But foreign investors, again, looking at the United States as the, the peerless redoubt of safety, the dollar is king again, it's strong, the treasuries are strong, and they pile into our securities. And, and, and I'm sounding a bit jingoistic. Here, you kind of take self-determination, monetary self-determination away from our central banker in chief. She has to worry about how a rate rise in the United States is going to ripple across the rest of the world. Right. I mean, and and, and that's the the consequence of a you know more globalized system, right? I mean, she, I'm sure the Federal Reserve is as frustrated as you know they've ever been because they would love to raise rates. They'd love to raise rates because they have to have some form of ammunition. For whenever that next recession comes, and it will come because cycles have not been erased from the system. But the fact that you're seeing all these global yields do what they're doing means that the Fed really can't raise rates. I mean, if the Fed were to keep raising rates to try to normalize at least the short end, they could conceivably cause an inversion if the long end keeps dropping. Now, tell us right? what an inversion would mean. Explain that for our, our listeners. So essentially, an inverted yield curve simply means that long rates are at a lower level than short rates. So effectively, what ends up happening is it suggests that the long-term future in terms of lending is going to be weak, right? That's, that tends to be the bond market's anticipation. And, you know, generally a lot of big purchases are driven based on longer duration bond yields. So think about 30-year mortgages, think about, you know, uh, your car in terms of your lease and things like that. Most uh, big purchase items in the United States are driven by very longer duration type of yields. Now, if the Fed were to keep raising rates, but the long end keeps dropping, Historically, an inverted yield curve can be a signal of recession because it signals actually that there's some serious, you know, longer term contractionary forces at play sure. that are disinflationary. And, and I think that's a very frustrating thing for the Federal Reserve because it means they are handcuffed to not just, you know, what's happening in the United States, they're handcuffed to what's happening globally. So, as much as everyone says, you know, the Fed has to be careful about the world. The reality is the world is what's putting the pressure on the Fed to not raise rates. Hmm. Now, interestingly enough, you would think that that would cause inflation, right? Because it means that rates then in the United States are artificially being held down because on a relative basis, they are uh, more attractive than bond yields globally. But, but the other complicating feature there is that you don't really have the inflation that the Federal Reserve has been trying to target. So you have this – it goes back to this very bizarre world that we live in. Everything says – when you look at the economic data, Fed should be raising rates. You look at inflation, probably not. You look at Europe, probably not. So what does the Fed do? And it ends up being you know, the same old story, which is do nothing. Right. I want to quote your blog. Uh, this is a great post that you had on uh, pensionpartners.com. Remember that whole Brexit thing? You wrote, the last couple of weeks have been nothing short of ridiculous. Britain votes to leave the EU and worldwide markets crash. Many European indices in a span of two days shed greater than 10% in market capitalization, rivaling historic declines that occurred in the 1987 crash. The media hammered the idea that leaving the EU was cataclysmic. Pensions were going to get destroyed. A global recession was about to start. Two weeks later, volatility has its biggest decline in history. Somehow, all of that reasoning for why Lehman 2.0 was about to begin was forgotten. Uh, go figure. Yeah, you know, I, I always make it a point that, uh, you know, the narrative always follows price, right? That really the role, especially in financial media, the role of the news is simply to try to find an explanation 
for why stock prices or bond yields are doing what they're doing. So everyone says Brexit, volatility, panic, people are selling, you have tremendous redemptions. But then the market starts rebounding and then suddenly, oh, well, Brexit must not be that bad. Now, nothing changed in terms of the political you know, uh, situation long term f- for Europe between for, – for Britain, r- r- rather, from uh, Friday to Friday. Right? In one week, not much really changed. Brexit was deemed to be uh, something that's going to happen no matter what. And what did you end up seeing? The UK stock market ends up having a tremendous run, is among the best performing of the EU countries. And everything that people believed would happen as far as the end of the world ended up not being the end of the world, but remarkably in the blink of an eye. And I think the whole point there, or at least the lesson there is, because narrative follows price, you can't really follow this stuff that closely and react Hmm. and think it's going to be like 08. And I get it. That's the anchor that everyone has because people tend to fear losses more than they enjoy gains. They immediately go to the most extreme example. But just because the media says it's going to be extreme doesn't mean that the other extreme can't happen. Well, yeah, everybody tries to reach for that neat analog. And if it's Lehman 2.0, you're naturally wondering, well, the the Wall Street investment banks that were falling like dominoes, that's got to be uh, weaker European economies. Uh, there's a nationalistic streak going on in France. And what if France leaves? And then what if Italy, one of the most indebted countries on the planet per capita, leaves? I mean, that was the, the easy narrative analogy. And you can imagine any editor saying, yes, give me 800 words on that, kid. In reality, what we saw was, I mean, it was disorderly at the outset. We saw the the pound, the British pound, have unbelievable volatility over uh, a couple of days. But then on balance, you would think it makes Britain's exports a lot more attractive. A lot of people are suddenly talking about visiting the UK. Um, unlike those other European economies that were tethered to the euro very directly, uh, they could kind of they, – they've devalued and, and made themselves attractive. So I'm sure you've been on countless conference calls over the past two weeks. What are you telling clients? What's your read on this? I mean, my read on this is that it's it's a non-event, and it's literally a non-event because Brexit. Brexit you're is saying not, Brexit is a non-event. It's not an event; it's a process. Right? Lehman was an event. Right? That was a shock. That was a legitimate shock that caused a serious stranglehold on the financial system. This never was, and it was never going to be. And by the way, anybody that says that oh the polls were wrong, excuse me, every poll has a margin of error. The polls were so close it could have gone either way. It was never clear. You know, based on the polls, one way or the other, even though it, it felt like they were going to stay in the EU. And I think it kind of goes back to this kind of environment and societal mood that we're in and this constant short term termism that uh, people are expressing. There tends to be this sort of, you know, pay attention to the news. And if the narrative makes sense, okay, it makes sense. And, you know, I'm going to believe in that because it, it makes sense in my mind. But the reality is, the world is much more complicated, and we tend to get much more surprised than we tend to think. What that means is that you really shouldn't be paying attention to a lot of this stuff. The events that are out there are that are most dangerous are the ones nobody sees coming. It's the thing that is only explained away sure. after the fact. Now, going back to forecasting, if you go, if you have an event, negative yields are going to go more negative. Bond market probably is going to be right about deflation because you are arguably one shock away from, you know, a, a sort of, you know, no turning back disinflation, deflation moment. Because again, no central bank really has any kind of ammunition, and that's the Japan, you know, story. 
Okay, just to just to repeat that for our listeners, when your rates are down to zero, when your rates are down to nothing, there's nothing to cut anymore. So you have no more arrows in your quiver. In theory, I mean, in practice, you can make up crazy strategies. Like very few people realize that the central bank in Japan buys futures on the Nikkei, uh, actually buys stocks. If things get bad enough, you can kind of conjure up things as you go along. Right, which goes back to these things always seem to take longer than you think because you're right. They, the uh, the argument of of uh, you know never bet against human ingenuity actually does apply also to central banks, right? In terms of finding creative ways to stimulate without you know if your traditional tools are basically well, no yes, Michael there. Michael Gayet, I I really you know I, I know we exhausted what was it three trillion dollars of quantitative easing where the Fed just printed money to buy up. Uh, bond assets and force people out of the safety of fixed income. Why didn't we see qualitative easing, my friend, where Janet Yellen got on a radio and kind of held my hand and told me everything would be great? Uh, I don't think they exhausted everything, my man. I mean, they didn't cut me checks to, you know, we had cash for clunkers. We had shovel-ready stuff. I never got a gift card to Walmart or to Home Depot or Red Lobster. I mean, this is what kind of kills me. Uh, Everything is based on precedent and what the 100-year history of the Federal Reserve and rules keep changing, and the environment keeps changing, and these guys across the world can print money, and they can change rules as they go along. Yeah, and, and I'll take it even a step further, right? So 100 years, again, sounds like a long period of time. That's a blip in time, right? So we don't know, and I always make this point to, to anybody I talk to that because it, based on precedent, everyone tends to look at the past and say that's the way it should be in the future – you know, we don't know if the last hundred years, forget about even the Fed, we don't know if the last hundred years in society have been an anomaly. Right? Just think about how fast progress has been for human civilization the last hundred years versus the centuries before that. Maybe the next hundred years are going to be normal, and we don't know what normal is. Right? That the last hundred years that we're basing all of our decisions off of, all of our models off of, that act, that actually is not the right model I've been to use. seeing people out there historians comparing the current you know actually going out there and saying that if you if you create a methodology this is the lowest we've seen the basket of of interest rates in recorded history I mean going back beyond the East India Tea Company I don't know if you could go back to the time of the pharaohs or, or whatnot but you know that's that's the kind of the scary thing of this is there's only so much of a benchmark to go back on and then what does it really mean that's exactly right. And I think also that, you know, the end result of that is, you know, you end up having this kind of fear and, and constant uh, itchiness to want to pull the trigger to sell, right? Because that's in the back of everybody's mind. And I think things like Brexit and these occasional flare-ups that happen really do accentuate that that sort of desire to just get me out, get me out. This is it. This is it. And bond market's right. But but again, you know, you just don't know, right? So, and, and But I do think that creates a very complicating a uh, scenario for wealth generation going forward, because in a world where everyone is so short term, in a world where it's half a penny or a penny a share. Say that. So wait, wait, hold pennies. up. Say that with a motion picture voice in a world where everyone is so <laughs> yeah, short term, in a world right. where every half a penny counts. Right. Exactly. You know, and, and, but in, 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 a, in a world where all that is happening, it, it does result in more over trading, which results in the worst performance for one's portfolio. I'm sure there are listeners of yours that may be listening in and checking their uh, accounts. And how are they checking their accounts? They're just picking up their smartphone. And in a second, they're able to see, you know, the change in value from yesterday to today. And, oh, how does the news impact, you know, what might happen tomorrow? And all of that creates this sort of manic depressiveness in trading such that it really does res- uh, hamper, I think, longer term returns. Now, on a side note, if you really are going to be bullish on stocks, 
the very fact that everyone is so itchy to sell and because they have so many avenues to do that through now because of technology, because of apps and things like that, it probably means that the, the, the longer-term investor has a lot more uh, potential to make money just because everyone else is being so short term and being so you know honed in on these moment by moment news stories when you guys talk about rotation, it was at the beginning part of the last decade uh, when the United States was really out of favor. Emerging markets and, and the BRICS had their roaring comeback. And that lasted up until subprime and the contagion. And the United States really picked up that baton and, and came out roaring. There wasn't a decoupling. Those guys are weak, as you saw what's going on in Brazil right now. China is slowing down considerably. Um, are you are you looking at uh, the emerging markets in Europe kind of as a as a contrarian right now? I mean, they've been beaten up and they haven't done anything for a while. Emerging markets have been effectively volatile cash, right? They've gone nowhere, but they've had these you know ten, fifteen, twenty percent moves back and forth, back and forth, making no progress, uh, significantly underperforming U.S. stocks, and you know that goes to the adage, the old adage, right, that the U.S. is the cleanest, dirty shirt, and that's why it's the only place to be. It's where all the momentum is. And that's been true. There's no question about it. But most money in markets, and people always forget this, right? And anybody that's been tracking the gold miners can attest to this, right? Most money is not made in the middle of the trend. It's made really towards the start of one, right? So you say to yourself, okay, nobody can predict the very long term. Maybe mean reversion is the only thing you can rely on. And if the US market has been the leader, then maybe for the last you know six seven eight years maybe emerging markets will be the leader for the next six seven eight years, but you can't see that in a chart right because that trend has not yet started, but again you don't know exactly when the trend starts but you know you're getting closer to that so I think from the perspective of any investor, the the forget about valuations on emerging markets the fact that nobody even wants to really touch them on mass and that everybody loves U.S. equities, and loves this hunt for yield means to me that you're going to have some kind of a pendulum swing at some point to that which has not worked, to all the laggards that suddenly become the next leaders. Now, if you're going to have a juncture, a secular move in emerging markets, guess what? You're probably going to also have bond yields rising with it. Now, why do I say that? Because emerging markets tend to be very sensitive to global growth, demand, inflation, commodities. If you have emerging markets move and you have a secular uh, trend higher there, then very likely it means that you're going to have inflation expectations rising globally because there's a message there that then comes in that movement of emerging market stocks. Now, what of that criticism that emerging markets are only as good as China, that it's just a you know second order derivative on how good China is? Don't bother investing in Peru, um, which won't be able to sell much copper if China slows down. That assumes that the the current level of Peru or current level of Brazil or any other emerging uh, market was was uh, sort of had a ratio uh, a relationship so to speak to China that was accurate. So if you look at you know China's markets are I don't know up marginally or, or I don't know the exact number, but when you look at Peru, Peru has had a tremendous year. If you look at the Peru ETF, for example, something north of you know, 15, 20, 30 percent, sure, depending on which uh, time you're looking at. So that that I think that argument is a lot more nuanced because it assumes that the there isn't an even more depressed level in things around China relative to China. Right. Now, what about oil? What What do you think is the, the correct kind of market clearing price for oil? We were told in 2008 when oil broke $130, $140 a barrel that it will never see sub three digits ever again. Uh, you know, jet fuel is going to become impossible. Entire airlines are going to go out of business. They're going to be charging you for uh, toilet water. 
on it. Uh, and, and and unbelievably, I mean, this fracking boom came out of nowhere. North Dakota, Nebraska came out of nowhere, and we saw oil prices collapse this year to the point that the uh, the market was really worried about bankruptcies in the oil patch. That goes, I think, to the um, what I like to call the negative narrative. Right? The negative narrative, which is you know, your mind tends to understand the sort of you know end of world cataclysmic story much more than the positive story. So when you saw oil go through its you know biggest decline, biggest uh, longest period of time under a 200-day moving average in history, everyone was saying this is it, oil patch is done, you're gonna have massive layoffs. Uh, you know it, it's gonna be something that we've never seen before. Again, another Lehman type moment, but all that assumed that oil would stay at that level. Now, obviously, oil had a big rebound. Now it's coming back off again. Where is oil likely to go? You know, the truth is nobody knows because just like nobody saw oil going to 30 at 100, very few saw oil going back to 50 at 30. Right? We don't really know where these levels are going to be. All we can say with any degree of confidence is, is there an overreaction? Right? That's that's really the only rather than focusing on what should the natural level of oil be. The question is, is there an overreaction one way or the other? Arguably, when you were pushing towards 30, there was an overreaction because as you got lower in price, it was very clear just how wildly negative everybody became because suddenly you had forecasts of oil going to 15. Well, wait, 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 hold up. Why not? Why? I mean, there's been a historical precedent for it. We saw, in comparison, a mild emerging market collapse, if you can call it such a thing. In the late 90s, and oil fell to $10, and China wasn't a part of that. Now the fear was... You know, you have Saudi Arabia in a price war with the oil patch in the U.S. and with Iran. You have China potentially slowing down. I mean, there was this enormous commodities panic. We had Jim Chanos on the show. He said, what if all of these cities were phantom cities? What if all of this construction, what if all of this, uh, you know, throwing money and snapping up commodities, price be damned, was, was just artifice? And Beijing will not be able to prop that up anymore. Why shouldn't there be a market clearing price again at $15 a barrel? There absolutely could, but going back to the example of, you know, hearing the forecasters when it was a 30, say 15, none of those forecasters said 15 at 100, right? My my point about the overreaction is that when you have that many sell side uh, analysts and research people long after a move has already taken place, suddenly try to play hero and say, well, the next 50 percent down is coming and it's going to be 15, but they never saw it or argued for it at a much higher level, that doesn't help me as an investor. That doesn't help individuals in terms of determining how to allocate their portfolio, right? So that, that's what I'm really kind of more referring to in terms of this idea of, you know, the overreaction was very clear given how unbelievably negative everybody was in the length and, and in the drawdown that had already taken place, which was already historic hmm. by that time when you were crossing 30. Now, yes, it can go to 15. It can go to 10. For all I know, you know what, 10, 15, 20 years, we may not even be using oil because you never know how things play out. Right. You just I mean, the, the, anything can happen in the very long term. But if you're going to be an investor, buy low, sell high says you want to go for the things which are not doing well. And time after time, study after study has shown that all you have to do, it's actually very simple to make money in markets. It's a very easy secret that's out there, but somehow nobody really follows through with it. The easiest way to make money is to buy all the stuff which hasn't worked over the last few years. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Michael Gayed of uh, Pension Partners. Uh, this this kid has the best rotation of anyone seen in New York, I think, since uh, Dwight Gooden. Is that is that correct, sir? Remind me to send you the check later for that. <laughs> what did I see that there was a – one of the chief strategies you have is up 16% year to date? 
Yeah, I mean, we have a few. We have a, a tactical model. We have mutual funds. We have separate accounts. This has been an, an unusual may, may I call Wait, may I call you an alpha male then? Uh, you could. Um, yeah, why not? Try that. That's or right. beta, are you more like of that. a beta male, beta bounce male? Ah, no, 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 go I'm, ahead, I'm go definitely, ahead. I'm definitely, well, actually, I'll tell you on that alpha versus beta. So, so for your listeners. So beta is basically market. It's passive indexing. It's things like that. Most uh, of the uptrend the last few years, the reason that you see passive indexing, passive strategies, performing as well as they have has been because it's all been about beta, all been about the market. You have not had a cycle just yet where alpha, which is the excess return above the market, above beta, where that's really kind of had a chance to really shine. Now, why is that? I'm on the road. I always make it a point also to say that alpha, and this is just based on a lot of studies we've done, alpha outperformance does not come from being up more. Real skill, real outperformance longer term does not come from chasing the upside. It comes from minimizing the downside. Mathematically, it's okay if you're up less than the market as long as you're down really, really less than the market. And that down really, really less is what generates the alpha over many, many cycles over the very long term. Unfortunately, in the last few years, because of the unrelenting smoothness of U.S. equity returns, it's been very hard for anybody, any strategy to generate alpha because alpha comes from managing the downside, which means you have to have downside to manage. And you really haven't had a juncture like that the last two, three, four years. Well, let me let me explain that for our listeners. And I do have to ask you, are you are you married, sir? Uh, I am. You are married. Oh, I was going to ask you if you post your sharp ratio on your Tinder profile, but uh, no, no, no. That one, I mean, Jesus, you'd have to swat. You'd, you'd get, I mean, with risk-adjusted returns like that, you could not stay single in New York, my man. You'd have to move to Bronxville or something like that, or Connecticut. You're an optimistic guy. You're an optimistic guy. <laughs> Does your wife know your sharp ratio? Uh, I, I sure as God, to God hope not. That's, uh... <laughs> if people boast about their hedge, hedgy husbands from Connecticut, you're like, I got to tell you, my husband on a risk-adjusted basis can beat your husband. I, I, w- I would like to see that bragging happen. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. But well, I do my- think it, it, is, it is important to understand that, you know, it's not just returns. It's about the way that returns come. And if returns going forward are going to be more volatile, going back to Minsky moment, more turbulence, uh, as opposed to moderation, more volatile environments going forward, uh, you're going to see the kind of world there where active strategies, passive indexing is not what you want. And you want to really be very focused on Managing downside risk, not chasing the upside, which has been what it's been all about the last few years. Well, you know, if you want to get into Wonka stand with me, uh, I went to my 10th business school reunion last year, and there was a professor who posted this paper that got a lot of talk from the investment jockeys there. Is this low volatility anomaly? Like, how yeah. is it that some of the most low volatility stocks in the past several decades have trounced the returns of higher volatility? You, you would think higher risk high reward, um, that you're not going to reward people for being in the kind of staid stocks like Nabisco or you know, PepsiCo and utilities sure. and all that. But it's a little counterintuitive because these things don't have the huge drops and drawdowns. They compound right. at a very chunkier rate. I, I don't understand how that anomaly even persists in this environment right now. And the other anomaly is long-term bond returns. We keep getting told that this 30-year bull run in bonds, which is now like a 35-year bull run in bonds, has to has to end and stocks have to trounce it because we're taught that stocks beat bonds. You get paid, you get compensated for taking more risk. What gives in both these cases? 
So on the low volatility anomaly, you're exactly right. It hits on that point that you know traditional finance says the only way to make more return is to take more risk. But in reality, it's about not about taking more risk. It's really about you know taking less risk at the right time. Right. I always use the analogy that when I'm driving, if I'm late to a meeting, I'll go 20 miles above the speed limit. But damn it, that freaking ETA doesn't go down no matter how fast I'm going. Mm. What creates the biggest variability in my ETA on my GPS? It's the traffic. Right? It's the things which slow you down, which is really the downside for markets. Now, on the low volatility anomaly, there's something interesting I think that's happening. And again, it could take some time to play out. And a large part of this is due to negative yields. All this is, comes full circle. With the uh, amount of money that's gone into uh, dividend sectors, in particular utilities, consumer staples, two of the you know top performing sectors as we speak, that low volatility anomaly actually ends up going away because what ends up happening is you end up having overvaluation then in all the dividend plays, which is what the low volatility anomaly is essentially to some extent about. Right, low volatility is tied to dividends. And because you're seeing so many new products now coming out, different ETFs, smart beta, things of that nature, focused or at least overweighted in low volatility parts of the marketplace, the fact that now so much money may be chasing that anomaly means the anomaly might get arbitraged away. It might actually go away. And if, if I'm looking at you know the scenario of what's the long-term optimistic uh, bull case, the fact that high beta stocks, the fact that cyclical sectors – are on a valuation basis cheaper than a lot of the low volatility stocks and sectors. And the fact that they have essentially really uh, underperformed broad market averages means that you may actually see have a high beta anomaly coming up now. What is a high beta anomaly again? So high beta anomaly meaning the, the things which you would expect to go up the most, which have not in a real bull market and a real expanding economy, those areas have lagged the broader market. In the next cycle, it could very well be that you end up seeing a rotation out of low volatility stocks into the riskier areas, which most people have been afraid of touching. And again, that would probably coincide with you know, the end of this negative yield type of cycle because there is a link between you know, money chasing yield, money chasing dividend stocks, money chasing low volatility names. If that theme is near its end, you get a flipping of everything. That means that you want actually the stuff which is you know, uh, actually more volatile because that might actually make more money given it, their level of risk relative to lower volatility stocks. Mm. Now, let's take a, a median uh, client, median listener, median fan out there. You have an enormous following on Twitter. Uh, a median, one of these case studies, I know every situation is different, confronts you in a median encounter in the elevator, takes 30 seconds, and they say, uh, Michael, I have $10,000. Um, I don't need it next week. I don't need it next year or in five years. It's not yielding anything in the bank. Uh, I'm worried about bonds. Where would you put it? How would you break up $10,000? And again, slathering the disclaimers all over this that you can't just give blanket advice. I think it's a it's an interesting test when I ask my, my guests this question. I think the first thing I'd say is if you really don't need it, it doesn't matter where you put it as long as it's not negative yielding bonds. Right, because if if you just take the the optimistic, you know, even not forget optimistic, even just you know pessimistic or median uh, scenario, you know, study after study shows that the accounts that tend to do best tend to be the ones that most people forget that they have, right? That where they just throw money into something and they totally forget that they own it, and then 10, 15, 20 years later, suddenly they've had tremendous returns. To some extent, almost anything that you buy now, 
probably has a chance at making money in the next 15, 20, 30 years. U.S. markets, you can argue, will be— But you said everything uh, but bonds, right? As long as it's not negative yielding. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, that's that's kind of the key. And you know, keep in mind, that's also even more nuanced, right? Because if you can have positive yielding bonds, but if the rate of inflation is higher than the yield on those bonds, you are losing purchasing power. Hmm. But for the most part, you look at you know, the way commodities, yes, they've come back, but they're still fairly uh, beaten down from a secular perspective. Emerging markets, Europe, with the exception of the US, most investable assets pretty much fit the definition of buy low, sell high here. They do, right? I mean, we're we're because we're because of home bias, we're so focused on U.S. markets. A lot of things are, on a relative basis, very very cheap. So if you really do have money that you legitimately will not be using or needing, it, I mean, you can pretty much throw money anywhere, and you'll probably, if your time horizon is not tomorrow, you're probably going to make money. Now, what's make money? What's your benchmark with with yields or so? You know, the risk free rate is so minuscule right now. That that's that's the argument, kind of. You know, you're you're desperate. It's like you know, three in the morning in the basement of the frat house. Uh, anybody who sees anybody is going to walk home with anybody, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I you know, I mean, it's it's we're in a world where you know, positive is even if it's uh, low, positive is still you know a, a heroic job, right? In a, in a world where everyone is uh, chasing yield and those yields just keep on getting decimated to decimals, um, I think that that you know, it, the expectations people have for returns in general, have historically always been probably too high. Uh, so, you know, making something is better than losing guaranteed, which is what negative yields would do. And you can conceivably make a lot of money from, you know, the secular laggards. Again, I go back to emerging markets and commodities in particular. Uh, you know, if, if you do have some kind of a move in the next 10, 15 years, if you assume that, you know, all the arguments people had for why commodities will go higher, nothing's really changed except the price has gone down. Right, all the arguments about you know growing population, you know commodities are, are it's harder to come by, all this stuff. None of that's changed. You probably can make quite a bit of money, but it, it, the thing is, it's hard for most people to visualize that unless the chart's already up and to the right. Right, right, and that's that. I think is always the, the that, that to me is the much bigger thing to kind of really focus on. That you have to not look at what's happened in the past. The future can look very, very different. But at least if you have the past and the past has been poor, bet on mean reversion. I go back to mean reversion is perhaps the only thing you can count on. I always uh, make it a point that you know, mean reversion is a concept as old as the Bible. right? He who is first shall be last, and last first is exactly mean reversion. Just like emerging markets were the leader from 03 to 07, U.S. was the leader from you know, really 08, 09 till today, you know, next 10 years – if you throw some money there, yeah, you're probably going to be okay. And what about you – know, this is an interesting litmus test as well. Uh, when you try to look into the crystal ball of having a child today in T-18 years, there's so much confusion. What if inflation comes back? What if you want a store of, of value? I mean there have been long stretches in history like, what, 1965 to 1982 where the stock market in the United States just hasn't done anything. And uh, a lot of people remember the lost decade of the aughts. Uh, 2000, 2008, 2009. I mean, certainly that started with bubble conditions at the outset, but you can, in fact, not make any money in the stock market over a rather decently long run. Oh, and there's no question, but but I do think that the way to minimize the possibility of that happening is to have a global mindset. You know, if, if the best way to avoid, you know, uh, seven years of famine going forward may be to position yourself in the seven years of famine that already happened. Right? Because say be say that to... again. I think it's an interesting point. 
it, it, the best way to avoid a seven years of famine, a juncture where you're likely to not make money or lose, is to go to the last, you know, anything that already has had that type of a cycle, you know, mm-hmm. that already has had seven years of famine in the past. Because, you know, while we can say it's seven years of famine, it's it's rare to have 14 years right. of famine, right? And it, but, but again, it becomes hard for most people to understand that if they don't see a chart going up and to the right, even though most returns, again, happen at the start of a trend, not by the time people have identified it. I did notice, for example, something like real estate investment trusts have had a gangbusters 20 years. I mean, high double digits. How does that sustain for so long? I mean, you talk about mean reversion. We're always taught that uh, uh, you know, United States balance portfolio over the real long run might well do 9.2% a year nominal. And you can double your money at 7.2% every 10 years. How much is too much diversification in your book? I know you're skeptical about being too passive, about uh, throwing money too much and depending on on index funds. But what is overkill and, and what is actually buying you good non-correlating return? And I know we've completely walked out listeners, but I think it's important for you guys to learn this. I'm really glad you bring this up. So, so there's this belief out there that diversification means you own stocks, you own bonds. Right, that that's you know, diversification just means you have one asset class and another to offset it, and you know the two will protect each other uh, in some kind of a decline. That is completely false. Diversification, when you have things which move the same, that does not mean you're diversified. Just because you have two, three, four, five stocks, just because you have you know some stock ETF and some bond ETF, doesn't mean you're diversified. Because you know when the shit hits the fan, everything goes down, everything correlates to one. Diversification is supposed to protect you against declines when in reality, if everything moves up, the so-called everything boom the New York Times has coined, uh, everything can go down in the same way. So now that then begs the question, so how do you actually really diversify? The only way to really diversify, and without getting too complicated, is to recognize that some parts of your portfolio should be volatile while other parts of your portfolio are not. Those other parts of of, of your portfolio should then become volatile at a different point in time while the others are not. So in other words, diversification ultimately means that volatility happens at different junctures for different parts of your portfolio in offsetting ways. Now, going back to emerging markets, emerging markets haven't participated on the upside. Emerging markets, arguably, even though they are equities, are probably an alternative diversifier, perhaps only the true diversifier now, because while U.S. treasuries have gone up in price, yields have dropped, bonds have gone up in price, yields have dropped, U.S. stocks have gone up, dividend yields have dropped. Emerging markets never participated in that. Their volatility characteristics are very different now than the U.S.'s, which means they probably are the only diversifier left. Well, I I, 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 I would push back on that. You can always buy a, a, an ETF of the Pyongyang Stock Exchange. North Korea doesn't correlate neatly with the United States. I, I kid, I kid, I kid. It doesn't exist out there. But <laughs> it's, I'm sure at some point it will, by the way. But yeah, yeah, yeah and so will uh, uranium futures in Iran. Uh, oh, gosh. Right. Why did I say that? Uh, thank you so much, Michael Gayed. I really appreciate this. It's very kind of you, sir. I'm, I'm sure we've learned a lot here. Thank you. Appreciate it. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Catch us and love us on NPR One, iTunes, WRIR, now on Fridays, Stitcher, Acast, and SoundCloud. And who in Sweden do I need to bribe to get picked up by Spotify? I want all you people out there pounding the doors of Spotify until we can finally get picked up by that nice medium. Uh, We are Smart Beta, zero coupon, inversely exposed to Chipotle. 
two and 20, try five and 50, kid. I'm Robin Farzad. Back at you next week. Oh, it's a safety dance. Oh, it's a safety dance.